Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. You're listening to Griefcast with me, Cariad Lloyd. Griefcast is a place to talk, share and laugh about the peculiar human process of death and grief. Each week I talk to a different person about their experiences of grief and death as we remember someone that they have lost along the way. Whether it was a long time ago or you've just joined the club. Welcome to Griefcast. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hey, Griefsters. I hope you're having an okay week. Um, Not too bad. I had my anniversary this week, and obviously I know you know what that means. Um, It was a weird one because I thought I I was completely fine. I felt fine, and then the day did not feel fine. Classic grief, right? Um, But I feel okay now. So anyway, just a a shout-out. A shout-out to people having anniversaries at the moment. however many years it has been. Thank you so much for all your amazing comments about last week's episode. I was very nervous about it um, because obviously Kim was such a brilliant person, such an amazing, amazing person, friend to know, and I just didn't want to let her down. Um, but your comments have been so lovely about the episode and it's really made me think that, yeah, I'm just glad we got a chance to celebrate her. So thank you. And if you hadn't had a chance to listen, it was an episode dedicated to the brilliant Kimberly St John former palliative care nurse so do have a listen um, because she's worth it this week I'm talking to the excellent Reverend Richard Coles uh, you will of course know Richard from his work on radio particularly BBC Radio 4 for Saturday Live or you may have seen him dancing on Strictly Come Dancing or how have I got news for you or read one of his brilliant books uh, he is a, a wonderful human and I was very very glad that um, he gave the time to speak to me and of course his work as a communist in a pop band. How can we forget? Sorry. I was like, there's something else he did. Um, he also has a new book called The Madness of Grief, which is came out on the 1st of April, which I thoroughly recommend, actually. You know, I get sent a lot of books on grief, griefers, and um, it's a really beautiful book. It's very raw and it's very honest. And I found it, you know, I reviewing books on grief is always weird, but I found it beautifully compelling. Um, so I thoroughly recommend that. And... 
It of course goes into the details of his past year after losing his partner, David, who died in 2019, who we're talking about today. Dancing champion, <laughs> that really is an unusual description. <laughs> I'm a bit, um, I should do another podcast about Strictly because I'm that obsessed. Oh really? Uh, yeah, and I spoke to Jill Halfpenny a couple of weeks ago, who, who was a wonderful, wonderful guest, really beautiful, beautiful woman to talk to. But yeah, I had to resist talking about Strictly for too long. Um, apologies, but I, I feel like it has to be mentioned. And it was a champion <laughs> if there were a race to the bottom, then I think I'd certainly be up I think there. getting on the show is the win, I think, isn't it? Because it's the experience, really. Yes, That's I suppose I so, but there was a... I did think I would be good at it. I really oh, did. did. I honestly oh, thought I'd be good at it. I thought there was just a great dance talent was waiting to be discovered. But it's still waiting to be discovered, unfortunately. But hey. Yeah, hey, you did very well. I think mm. sometimes musicians are thrown because they are, they have good rhythm. I don't have so good you, rhythm. I really don't have good rhythm as a musician, ex-musician. No, no, terrible rhythm. <laughs> okay. I used to say I was playing with portamento and feel, but actually I can't do rhythm. I found um, out I've got one leg longer than the other. Have you? Yeah, which I think is one of the reasons why uh, I was so bad at it and also why perhaps my rhythm isn't great. It's because actually I walk funny. Yeah, that's really interesting. Oh. That's, my dad had a motorbike accident years before he actually died and he had one leg short in the other. And it, it really does, yeah, it, it gives you such a strain when you can hear that person coming. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's a really different rhythm. Yeah. You know they're coming. Um, Richard, how how are you today? How are you feeling today? Let's ask that. Start well, there. That's a good question. I mean, uh, it, d- it really depends which day we have the conversation mm. because yeah. uh, a new thing is I'm I'm sort of fourteen, fifteen months after David's death, and that's I talked so to, so early. Well, yeah, it is. I mean, yeah. at first it seems like a long time, and of course everybody else wants you to be over it by now, mm. and that your sort of Victorian period of mourning, your year of full mourning, is done. But I spoke to a friend of mine who's a widow and she said she found the second year harder than the first and I can sort mm. of see why. So, uh, plus, of course, most of this has happened in lockdown, which has yeah, been weird yeah. enough. Some ways that's been quite helpful, in other ways not so helpful. Um, so I've actually been struggling a bit just lately and writing about it was, people say, oh, was that a cathartic experience? And the answer is no, I'm, I'm a long way off from any cathartic mm. feeling, I think. But I am interested in what's going on around me and how the world looks to someone in grief. Mm. Um, but I'm, it's it's tough, you know. Yeah, God, and I, 14, 15 months is, I mean, I'm 20 plus years. So <laughs> to me, I'm like, that's nothing. It's so, I, you know, as we say on the show, that, like that's fresh. It's fresh out of the box of grief. Like, yeah. And I think you're, you're completely right. The first year people who don't understand give you that grace period. Yes. Oh, it's, he's, they've just lost someone. But then after a year, they do sort of look at you like, still? And you come back, like the reaction I get, 20 plus years, they're like, still? Still yeah. talking about it? <laughs> like, you slightly feel that you've yeah. kind of, it's, a, it's bad manners, isn't it? Mm. Not to be um, the perky person. Mind you, anybody wants me to be perky for any reason, I'd want to stop that straight away. <laughs> but, but they do, there is a sort of impatience, I think, with mourning, because mm. it's boring, actually. Mourning yeah. is boring. It's Grief slow as well. It's very slow and it doesn't yeah. move at a pace that's clear. So I think that's the other thing people get frustrated with is like, you can't say, don't worry, in six months I'll be fine. It's like a builder being like, who knows when I'll finish? You'd be yeah. like, what do you mean, who knows? I mean, part of me thinks I would like to do the sort of old English way of stiff upper lipness, but actually silence around such things is of limited usefulness, I think. 
And, yeah. Uh, I'm, not, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure about that now. I think stiff upper lip is... I think there's a... Whereas ever with everything, I always think there's no there's no point just throwing something out. It, it has its purpose and it can be really helpful when you when you don't want to express something. If someone asks you and you think, actually, I don't need to break down today, that's not going to help. Yeah. But I agree with you. Silence, when you want to speak, is not okay. It needs to be, yeah, within your control. And yeah, for, I mean, 14, 15 months is, is no time at all, especially with what we've been going with through. So who are we remembering today? You've said his name already, but let's say his, his proper full name if you want to. Or well, I'm remembering um, David Coles, who was my civil partner. I mean, husband would have been, had the Church of England regulations allowed us to upgrade, as it were. My life partner, my soulmate, mm. the love of my life, um, who died uh, just before Christmas 2019. So it was just before all the madness took over. Yeah. So you had you had a few months, well, really no time at all to kind of, I would say probably in that shock period of, oh gosh, what just happened to me? And then the pandemic hit. Yeah, as well. and because I'm vicar of a parish, I had to do, I had to make decisions about that. So mm. uh, actually just in the very sort of thick of the first rush of loss and bereavement, I was having to make careful, balanced decisions about protecting the people I'm responsible for. So, mm. uh, and then we went into lockdown and then this enforced solitude and silence of lockdown, which of course, like lots of people I found, I enjoyed very much in a way. Mm. And I find with grief that there are at least two levels. Of which there's, there's the sort of top level, which means you burst into tears mm. because you can't pick what parmesan you're going to have in the co-op, that sort of thing. And then there's the tectonic level where you just know that deep, deep, profound geological shifts are happening that you can do nothing about except just ride them mm. if you can. So I sat in the garden and I'm lucky I've got a beautiful garden, thanks to David, who was a wonderful gardener. And uh, rather pleasantly, the stuff he had planted the year before he died put in an appearance after his mm. death, which was like having a daily bunch of flowers from him, which was <laughs> lovely. But also I was able just to allow these movements to begin to happen and realise that this was much bigger than anything I could control or surf or mm. rationalise. And... Um, I just had to sort of set sail on an unfamiliar and quite threatening sea. Yeah, I've spoken to a few people who have been grieving during the pan- you know, freshly grieving during the pandemic. And I think it's such a, well, I mean, it's, you know, it's difficult for all sorts of reasons. But um, one of the things I keep coming back to is when you, if you lost someone pre-pandemic, normal times, one of the things we often talk about in the show is that you want the world to stop. Like, you know, you go shopping or you go to a park and you think, how are all these people just living and existing? Yeah. And you want everyone to stop and pay respects for, you know, your feelings. And that's what's happened during the pandemic. You've looked out the window and there's no one. Everybody has stopped. And I think, like you said, that's such a... In one way, it's a comfort that there's not this, like, bustle of joy and happiness when you don't feel it. But in another way there's not this joy and happiness to kind of remind you that life's going on. It's a really... Yeah. I think there's a diluting effect of society. Mm. And uh, sometimes I just wanted to slip into a kind of mainstream huddle of something that was going on, maybe just to talk about this is us with people or church porch gossip on a Sunday, that sort of thing. Just that daily contact with people that kind of gives you a little energy and raises your gaze from the sort of dark horizon you might be looking at that stuff i miss yeah 
And I think when pre-pandemic, because that was, you know, your daily life was was the muddle, often what you wanted was like, I just want a break from this. I want people to leave me alone for a second. I want to have my grief for a second. And it's funny that we having taken it away actually you realize the purpose of that hubbub and yeah church gossip that you know it just lifts your gaze away from it for a second and actually I think I can imagine grieving in the pandemic is it's it's quite intense you're doing a lot of grief work that maybe would be not postponed but you know done in a more relaxed fashion maybe not having to do it by yourself every single day I think as well, the, the sort of passing pageant of life gives you little handholds and footholds to just haul you along sometimes. Yeah. And I didn't have that. I could have used a bit of traction sometimes that wasn't there. Yeah. I did have a, one thing I found very useful was I used to walk the dogs the same route every day in that wonderful spring. Oh, great healer. And uh, it was lovely just to see things every day coming into bud and then into leaf and into bloom. That was great. Yeah. Yeah, there's a, um, a phrase, I can't remember where I heard, but saying that you have to go through each season without them. Oh, and I feel good. like, yeah, because it's like something in your brain is like, they haven't seen the buds, they haven't seen the flowers, they haven't seen the brown, like it somehow gets into your bones of like, they have gone. Yeah. And I feel like last year really gave us the show. You really saw each season really clearly, I guess, because we weren't distracted. But yeah, that's always stayed with me. And it was a very fruitful year. So my fruit trees went bananas and and I was able to make preserves. And wow. there was something about making preserves. So I did some crab apple jelly. We've got some wild apple trees in here. And uh, I made some jam. And there was something about preserving. Mm. I don't know what's happened, Karen, if you had this thought, but in the past year I've become, without realising it, sort of obsessed with time and timekeeping. So mm. preserving became a big thing. I've become sort of a bit of a watch bore. I don't know where that came from, but I've now become quite weirdly interested in, in watches. And I thought, mm. what's that about? And I'd like to say, oh, well, I like the sort of intricacy of the machinery. My great-great-grandfather was a watchmaker. But actually, I think it's because I'm interested in the measuring of time. Mm. Because there's a tick-tock around a death, isn't there, yeah, don't you think? Yeah. And I knew David's death was... Well, I had four days to prepare myself for David's death, um, although he hadn't been well, so uh, I knew he wouldn't make old bones, but there's one thing to know someone yeah, won't make, yeah. and then another thing to hear that they're going to die. And I sort of hoarded time, I think, then, for him to be alive in, or something. That's beautiful. I completely understand that. I think when you lose someone, you just become very aware of what it, what time, the the weight of it, what it means. And so I think sometimes when I would see people being like, oh, who, well, you know, I'll do that in 10 years, I'd think, no, you won't. Mm. You don't have the time. And I think you get a bit, um, yeah, sort of precious about it. And like you said, then, yeah, I can understand looking at watches and trying to con- maybe control it or understand it is comforting. And also, there's that, you know, you think you have plenty of it. Mm. And then all of a sudden you realise it is a finite resource. And as the kind of, as you reach the bottom of the hourglass, hourglass things suddenly move very quickly Mm. that's a bit of the knowledge we have as bereaved people i think is that um this is not indefinite yeah yeah and it's a i mean i can only say this 20 plus years like eventually i'm glad to know that (laughs) but it takes a long time to be glad to know that to be like yeah it's it's useful to know that i think that's really nice what you said that the sand does move really quickly and it it definitely has powered a lot of my decisions 
or you know even small choices about things you tiny things you want to do because you just think yeah there isn't there isn't the time to say it say the thing do the thing because yeah. there isn't the time yeah so what um what happened if you don't mind me asking me David? no it's fine um well david was addicted to alcohol he's an alcoholic I don't like to describe him so baldly as that because he was lots of things, but the thing that killed him was addiction to alcohol. And uh, that, over years, gradually affected his health to the point where it became unsustainable. And he was having... His liver function was very poor, so he was constantly having to go into hospital for blood transfusion, all the things that people who drink too much um, suffer. And so there was this one day when I had been in London working and I came back and David had been bringing out blood which was not un- unusual mm. um but i said okay you've got to go to hospital and he refused to go he, he used to be um a nurse in a and e so he's the worst patient in the world yeah. so he refused to go so in the morning he he was he was he was worse and i said you've really got to go to hospital and to my surprise he agreed so actually ambulance came and took him away and then i went off to curate his overnight bag which was an extremely complex operation because he was very, very particular. And I had to make choices about his crochet or his knitting or that kind of thing. Um, So I did that. And then I went to hospital thinking it would be an admission like any other. Mm. And I was waiting in A&E. And then the nurse came and said, you need to come through. And I went through to the booth where David was being treated and it looked like a war scene. He was, his bleeding had, had got out of control. And then there's that weird thing of the shock of, they started saying things to me and the, the medics and they gave me this form to sign and I was kind of joking about it in the way I do. And then David said, he doesn't understand. Can you give us the room? And everybody left and then he told me that he loved me and that he was going to have an operation and he might not survive. And then they whisked him off. And so I was standing there with blood, on, literally his blood on my hands, holding this consent form, blood-stained piece of paper. And they said, look, come and wait outside ICU because we'll bring him into recovery after the operation. And so I walked through A&E, which was full of people, and they went, oh, it's the Strictly Vicar. <laughs> <laughs> and like an idiot, well, you know, I was going, oh, hello, yeah. da, 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 da. And so I had to do kind of like 10 minutes of selfies, shaking with shock and white with, you know, horror of what was happening um, before I a nurse came and took me away. And then... I just, I kind of, I had things to do. So I was trying mm. to work out, oh, I've got a carol service tonight. Oh, I've got, anyway, so I phoned phoned a friend, in fact, my PA, and she said, leave it with me, she's very efficient. So she started organising that thing. And then I, I phoned David's mum and said, um, you should come, it's not looking great. And they live in Preston, which is kind of three hours drive away. So they hit the M6. It was a Friday. It was um, busy. And then I phoned my brother, my older brother and his wife, and said, just to let you know, um, David's in hospital, he's having an operation, it's not looking good. And they said, what do you want us to do? And I said, oh, nothing, I don't think. Anyway, see you, bye. And then they phoned back and said, do you want us to come? And I went, yeah, I think so. <laughs> So then my brothers arrived, my other brother arrived, and and then there was this little procession of medics. And I've spent enough time in ICU with other people, and especially around people who are dying, to know, to be mm. able to read the things. And they did the solemn procession. And I thought, oh God, they said, will you come to us to the relatives' room? 
So I went into the relatives' room, you know, all blonde wood and mm-hmm. I see you as a new unit at Kettering General, so it was all spankingly um, smart and it was sort of smelled of paint. And uh, there was the little box of tissues with one teased out towards you. And so they said, blah, 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 can't do anything. And I said, oh, I think I said this is devastating, an unnecessary comment, you know. Um, and then they said, I wildly wanted them, one of them to sort of put her hand up and say, oh, I saw this procedure when I was in training. That, uh, or they would fly in a team from somewhere. But yeah. that wasn't to happen. And so they said, we'll manage his symptoms and we'll make him comfortable. He's on ventilation. When he comes off ventilation, he might just fade away, but we'll just uh, let him go. So then I thought, what the fuck do I do? Mm. And I thought, well, I need to phone his mum and dad. So they were stuck in a car on the M6, battling their way down. But I phoned his mum and said he's not going to make it, which I, I did it because... They needed to know to 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 get his brothers and his sister mm. kind of mobilised too, which actually they'd already done. So in fact, they didn't need to know. But I just heard Irene, his mum, who I love, gave this kind of like strangled sound, and I thought, oh God, you're stuck in this car on the M6, and you've got two hours to go, and your son's dying, and you don't know if you're gonna. And she went, "Come on, David, come on, David, hold on, hold on." Um, and then they got there, and then they removed the ventilation. And then four days later, he actually died. But we had a sort of four-day vigil with him. And, of course, it was when I'd gone home for a shower and to check in on the dogs that he actually died. And that was that. (sighs) Such a lot. That's such a... I think what you're saying is really... Yeah, I've obviously spoken to a lot of people about grief, but that idea of being aware of something, the difference of like, yes, someone's ill, they're ill, you know, this is what we do. Yeah. And how you manage, how you protect yourself, how you build yourself this little castle of, I know what to do, we go to hospital, I do the bag, that's, and then he comes home, and then we do, you know, and I can just imagine so vividly you going into that routine and then someone breaking it, you know, a doctor being like, no, this isn't the same. It's It's... I think I, I say this a lot on the show because my dad was diagnosed with cancer in February and dead by the April. And I never gave myself the space to, for how much shock I was in. Like yeah. how much shock it is when, even if someone tells you, even if someone's ill and you've got all this information, it, it, it's, still a, it's still a bit of you, like you said, that's like, what? No, not me, not us. Not Where's the thing that makes this fine? Like I just need to find the thing that makes this fine. Where did I leave it? Yeah. And also I, I've, I've been on the edge of that so many times before mm, so i just thought no hang on i'm not this is not i'm not i'm not the center stages i i'm the person who has a useful thing to do now so i wanted yeah. to do useful things and i just thought it's very interesting because the people in icu you know i know lots of them and uh, i'm a regular visitor to the hospital and there's that one of the ways you measure your fate is the change in their attitude where they go from the sort of bantery mm. relationship that medics and undertakers and clergy have because you you know you need it and that's just and quite properly switched off and they become professional caregivers yeah and you just think no no no, no, no let's make a joke no. let's make a joke yeah, yeah 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 don't don't i'm not in that cast i mean i'm the person over here watching exactly I'm not, I'm not, yeah it's it's i did this thing where i would i would go into david's room and i would look at the monitors and i would kind of nod at them sagely 
as if I kind of knew what they meant. And I, again, I think I was just trying to be someone who could rescue him. You know, mm. and I would look at these monitors. Mm, yes, I see his BFA is over his RBX, and I think if you turn that knob to the left, he'll probably survive. You know, you're just looking, like you said, for these handholds, these things that will, because because what someone's doing, like we said on the show before, is like ripping the rug underneath you, and so it's like everything's moving. So you're trying to grab things, you know, to be like, well, hang yeah. on, hang on, like if I hold that and that doesn't break, then it will be okay. You're just trying to yeah control this seismic thing that's happening to your life and i think it's such a weird process because it starts when someone says they're not going to make it but it doesn't end for quite what you know their death is part of that then the grieving is part of everything shifting yeah but it's that bit when you yeah and you know you start thinking oh my god i'm gonna have to live with this am i like this like the world shaking while i'm trying to walk yeah um I wondered if you've read um, or spoken to Dr. Catherine Mannix. Have you heard of her? She's I've a... heard of her, no. Funnily enough, Carried, I have my first session with a bereavement counsellor today. Oh, amazing. So I've been sort of putting it off, I suppose, yeah. for a long time. And then a friend of mine is a bereavement counsellor, and she said, you know, you may... When she said, you, you really need to talk to someone. And I thought, yeah, I know I do. And she said, OK, here's the name. And anyway, that's happening. That's amazing. And I, I think you've done good timing i often think sometimes people go into it either they they ignore it or they say like a month later they're like i'm having bereavement counseling and i think eh, i'm not sure you're, i'm not sure you're through the shock yeah. and i think that's actually when bereavement counseling can be really helpful when you've kind of done the shock you've done the year you've sorted out a lot of the admin Oof. and then you're left with oh i've got these feelings and that's yeah. actually when someone's like now you need to talk about how you're going to live with this yeah but yeah the um Dr. Kaffermatz is a, a palliative care consultant and she wrote an amazing book called um, With the End in Mind, which is just stories of how people died and, and you know, how what happens. But we did an episode with her and she, this is the first time someone had said it to me, she said, the amount of people who say, I just left the room. Yeah. And she, yeah, and she was like, what she feels and other, you know, she was sort of speaking for her profession was like, some people want you there and some people don't. Yeah. But people will stay for be there for days and days and days yeah. go to get a cup of tea and then yeah. come back and feel guilty whereas she, her theory is like they were waiting for you to you know yeah no leave. i don't feel guilty about it at all as um mark david's brother was with him when he died but he was asleep and the nurse woke him and said he's gone oh. and uh and mark was determined to be with him and he was and uh i think perhaps he felt that he, he wished he'd been awake to catch his last breath and i said mark it's not you were with him when he lived. Yeah, you know, that's yeah. the important thing. And also, and I just know from it's happened so many times in my experience when everybody goes. Course, you know? yeah. And I think it's maybe it's a bit like falling asleep. Sometimes you need a bit of peace and quiet. Yeah, that's why I think it's quite nice. You just said his brother was there asleep because I thought, gosh, that must be such a familiar sense to have a brother asleep near you. Like yeah. that's something you've known your entire life. That must have been a very peaceful energy to have around you as you as you die. Yeah, he was pretty far gone by then. He was on morphine, and he was on a morphine mm. driver, and uh, he was on maximum dose. And uh, for those four days, he was sort of in and out of lucidity. And interestingly, the personality was very much the same. He was very funny and charming and bad-tempered and annoying sometimes as well. But, <laughs> but um, I, I, I seized a moment where he was sort of fairly lucid, and I said to everyone, could you just leave us alone? And I had an opportunity to say the things that I wanted to say. But I don't know if they landed. Yeah. 
but then I know that you know we we long for Victorian deathbeds, don't we, where everyone says exactly the right thing and it's lovely, and it's like anything else; it just doesn't go according to plan. No, and that that idea comes from novels, which was then um, co-opted by films that there is a deathbed, and and that they are not, as you said, my dad was on morphine and. Yeah, you know, like it, they can start seeing and hearing all sorts of things. But I suppose it, the only thing you you take, well, I think might help to take comfort is that you get to say the things. Whether they land is sort of not your, not up is to it? you, is it? No. Like it's like, yeah. <laughs> like it's. But the fact that you get to say them and that you, and I guess that comes back to what you were saying about living, is that you felt them while he was alive, and so he must have known that while he was alive. Yeah, and we did, you know, the big. The big thing was he was terrified that his his drinking was very it was out of control and there was mm. a period when it was almost unbearable and I think he was terrified that I would that I would go. Um, lots of people in those circumstances do go and it's not intended to be a judgment on anyone but I I wasn't going to go and I mm. stuck with him and once I think he'd realised that I wasn't going he changed his pattern of drinking and became yeah. much it became a much easier life to live together. So so that was good. And I know, you know, the important thing is I loved him and he loved me and we both mm. knew that. And, you know, that's irreducible. Yeah. It's all you've got, really, at the end of it, isn't it? It's all you've got is they did know it while they were alive. You know it. But it's yeah. so hard to... It's still important, like you said, to have the, try and have those moments. I think that's, that's beautiful that you did get that moment that he was... And that you were able to ask the family to give you time and that they did, all of those things that sometimes people don't get. Yeah. You laughed when I said the admin. I was just wondering if you've had um, (laughs) experience. Because people, when you're 20 plus, and obviously I was a teenager, the admin is like, oh yeah, there was lots, wasn't it? But whenever I speak to people who are like, first five years, they're like, oh my God. (laughs) No one prepares you for that level of work. I mean, I knew about do. it again because I spent a lot of my time walking alongside the newly bereaved. So, of course, um, yeah. and I also have seen that there can be a therapeutic value to that, mm. that people have to do, you know, these boring things, and actually doing a boring thing can sometimes get you through. Um, I just, it was just sort of overwhelming, and because I couldn't do any of it at first. Actually, no, that's not true. The first thing I did was try to start the admin to register the death, and mm. they said. The bereavement office at the hospital was actually run by my cousin. <laughs> so she was really sweet and she said, look, and kind, and she said, look, don't do this, don't do this now, come back in a day. So I, I did, but I wanted to get on with it, you know, roll mm. your sleeves up, get on with it, practical, practical. Um, and then I sort of hit, you know, just the kind of mountain of stuff, but thank God my PA kind of came up and she took on getting it into sort of a, appropriate piles. And then lockdown happened and I was just sat looking at these piles literally not doing anything i mean i did a few and then everyone said about well due to covid we can't blah, 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 blah. Mm. so i just thought fuck it i'm just not going to do it and yeah. see what happens and of course nothing happened it's yeah. still waiting to be done a lot of it but it'll still be there when i'm when i'm ready and minded to do it i think yeah i think fuck it's a pretty good attitude for that first yeah. year about fuck a lot it. of things yeah it's just yeah it doesn't matter so much stuff you can place this importance on or you can think is oh no we must do that it's like it doesn't matter it doesn't I'm matter. a boy scout as well by nature and okay. I always want to be diligent and and, I'm, and I've stopped actually doing that mm. and 
Well, it's kind of annoying in the sense that there were certain things I wish I had done because I wouldn't have to be dealing with them now, but <laughs> actually, fuck it. Yeah, fuck it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't... Like you said, I think sometimes... Because what you're left with is the feeling of like, even if it gets done, you're like, well, I'm glad it's done. Are they still dead? Yes. So it doesn't sort of lift the, the main thing that you're dealing with. Yeah, that's right. 
I think that fear of fading is really valid. And as someone at the other end of the scale, like, yeah, I, I, I struggle to remember bits. And that's also because I was younger. So I think it's, again, I think if you don't get it, if you haven't been through it, people can be like, oh, well, you know, of course you won't, of course you won't forget them. But yeah, you might, you know, things do fade. And it, that's fade. why yeah. it's okay to grasp things like that. And, you know, hoard all the hoard all the clone you can <laughs> and it might be in 10 years time you you don't you don't need it so much but even the bottle or have they call it transitional objects as well in grief like things that can you know somehow connect you to them somehow allow you to keep them with you and that's what i've much sort of moved on to now sort of objects that don't necessarily like something he gave me that's silly that sits on my desk and it, you know, although I can't necessarily remember quite how he sounded, I have that, and that's the anchor that I, I hold to. Yeah. But I think there's absolutely nothing wrong with, with doing those little rituals and, and yeah, rituals that give you that sense that they're still with you in some in some way. But I'm wondering if also you have to pack them off. <laughs> I, as someone down the line, I can only give you my my experience. I sure. think you, it's. With grief, it's it's always a, a checking in. That's what I think is good. It, am I being weird or am I, is this okay? <laughs> and yeah. I think I've definitely had times I'm like, do I need this? Is this about clinging on to him with my fingernails? Or is this a nice thing that gives me comfort? Yeah. And I think it's sort of worthwhile, a bit like, you know, you, you do with a, a sp- you know, your house. Like, is, is this from a mess or is it chaos that I understand? And you sort of have to do that like maybe once a year. Yeah. And then as it goes on, once every five years and you kind of have to sort of my mum's definitely had that with my dad of like maybe every five years or she was like you know what I am gonna paint that study and I am gonna get rid of that stuff because actually we don't need it but I I think there's no harm in holding on to it till you're really sure you don't need it oh I, I had a massive clear out partly because David's life was quite chaotic and the yeah, sort of parts yeah. of the vicarage that he colonized were uh, were kind of just crammed with stuff so we needed to deal with that and so lots got chucked out and I had a sort of I was full of a purifying zeal mm. and um and of course inevitably a year later I'm thinking oh god I wish I hadn't done that I wish I hadn't done that but I don't want to hang on to stuff no I'm also 50, I... 58 I'm 59 next week I think and I don't want to hang on to stuff yeah and when I say that I mean like yeah, I think I think you have to have the clear out. Like that that does have to happen. Yeah. And I think that, you know, it's more like when you find this I've got two boxes of stuff that my mum recently went, just now that has to go to your house. And I was like, okay. Yeah, okay. And it's photos and some letters and things and yeah, and I that's what I mean, it's like you do the big clear out and then you're left with smaller boxes, and then you do another clear out and you're left with one box and you do yeah, yeah, it's like but it's okay to have the few bits and pieces, I think that's important that you know, to never judge yourself for hoarding or holding on to things. Like when there's a right time to get rid of things, often you do. And my husband, he lost both his parents and we were listening. He was interesting. (laughs) Interesting. (laughs) Interesting. Did you meet your husband? You said you were young when your father died. Oh, so yeah, no. So my husband lost his dad about 10 years after I lost my dad and then his mum about another four or five we've been together sorry we've been together a very long time I got it okay. <laughs> um, yeah 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 um, so, so you weren't it wasn't like kind of the bereaved club meeting oh each no, other. No, no no but what no. did happen was 
he lost his dad and I was very much like, hey, got it, dead dads, that's my thing. I know what to do. And then he lost his mum and I was like, oh God, this is a, this is a grief <laughs> I can't, like, I don't understand. So, um, yeah, which is, you know, it's a completely different world when you are, you've, lost, you've lost both parents. But yeah, he, you know, he was a massive Madness fan. He is a massive Madness fan and his mum was too. And he had so much like, you know, singles and special EP, all this stuff. And he got rid of it. And he said to me just the other day, like, I... I almost don't know what happened when I did that, but this fire came over me of eBay, eBay the lot. And he said that thing of like, oh, I kind of wish I'd kept one bit, but I didn't, I didn't. And the songs still exist, you know, it's not like you can't listen to them. I I changed my, so I thought rather than think about, it was overwhelming to think, what am I going to keep? So I felt instead about what am I not prepared to give away? Yeah, that's nice. And it just came at it from a sort of different angle. And uh, I keep his watch, so I'm oh. wearing. I wear his watch, and also his a cross, silver cross around my neck. Here's a weird thing. So the nice smell of David, his his cologne, I keep that, and I can sort of give a, get a whiff. But he was also, and he could have smoked for Britain. He really could. Mm. He was in, and I am haunted by cigarette smoke. Oh, so really? there are a couple of places in the vicarage where I just get this very strong, real, vivid sense of. Cigarette smoking, and it was a permanent bone of contention between us because I used to be a smoker and I gave up. And like lots of people who do that, I find smoking unbearable now. Yeah, same. I'm in that category. I can't bear it because I used to. Yeah, but yeah. he always used to sneak a crafty fag, and then I would come in. I think you'd be smoking in the vicarage again. We'd have a row. And he haunts me now with these unexpected little gusts of fag smoke. That uh... the cleaner, Sarah, she said she she smelt it too sometimes. And she and David were very close. So, I don't know, maybe he's haunting me with fag smoke. <laughs> sounds like Roald Dahl, doesn't it? <laughs> I think that that sounds, from what you said of David, like, that sounds like maybe how he would haunt you. <laughs> like, slightly. I had an interesting conversation with his... After he died, his mum said, listen, you must not think your life is over now. You mm. must live, you know, look forwards and think of the life that you can live. It's what David would have wanted. And I said, Irene, it's not what he would have wanted at all. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't want to be just to sit at his grave all day long and Weeping. maybe go home and stir some polenta or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the truth of the person, yeah, is... Is, is always funny but um that's in- i've heard that before about cigarette smoke really sure. yeah i'm sure i've had someone else say that my my dad had a particular musk like he used to work in the study which was basically a box room so he worked from home and it really it just smelled of like a man who's been in a tiny room for too long man on cave. a computer man cave yeah and um you know now that room is like it's like yeah where the grandkids sleep and stuff and and you know years after sometimes you'd open it and you'd be like oh and I'd be like oh it's like dad's been in here (laughs) and I was like yeah and it's very fitting that my father was haunting me through the smell of his musk of being in a room too long again I was like yeah typical and do your kids notice it do your kids have a it's interesting I wonder if you have children and especially if they have no awareness of the loss that you've experienced they experience your loss nevertheless through you. And I wonder if they pick up yeah. on Yeah, I don't know. I mean, they're very young. They're very, very young. So we talk about it a lot because obviously she's got three grandparents who aren't there. And then yeah. often, you know, because I do this show, and I'm very passionate about talking about grief. So we're very honest with her. We say, you know, he's dead. But she... just this morning, my husband was like, she was talking about bricks and cement. 
she's learning about. And um, my husband's father was an architect, so he just said, oh, gosh, Grandad would be proud of you talking about bricks and cement. She went, yes, he's dead, isn't he? And my husband was like, yes, he's dead. She went, yes, he's not here. No, he's not here. She went, oh, so you can't see him. No, I can't see him. She went, I can see my friends, though, so that's good for me. <laughs> it's like, I said After to Ben... Yeah, something. I said to Ben, it's... it's you know, what she does a lot, I don't mind, obviously it's great, she, fine, she talks about it, but she'll always add in, it's good, I, I'm not sad, mummy, but you're sad your dad died. <laughs> like, All right, mate, you can ease off on that a bit, like, yeah, but I don't, I think it's important that they, you know, have that side to it. Can I ask, um, did you do his, do, sorry, I can't think of the word, right word is, did you not host? His officiate. Few, officiate, thank you. <laughs> Such a performer. Did you, did you MC? <laughs> His funeral at all? No. Did you get someone else to do it? Yeah. No, I didn't want to do it. Mm. Um, I, d- I did. I had a cousin who died who I loved very much, and I did. I did her funeral, and afterwards I kind of wished I hadn't because, uh, you, if you're a mourner, you need to mourn. Yeah, so, yeah. Uh, so in fact, David's old principal at Theological College, who's a friend of ours, he presided. My curate Jane, she assisted, and then two clerical friends of ours. Um, Lucy, who's a theologian who trained with David, she did one of the readings. Then Kate Botley, media vicar oh, yeah, friend of yeah. mine, she did another reading. And of course, it being a clergy funeral, there was kind of strong clerical representation. Mm. But no, I sat there and I did one thing, which was at the very end, I sprinkled David's coffin with holy water. Oh. And, uh, and then we went off and buried him in the churchyard of the little village where we have our cottage. Um, but by then... I was desperate for a pee. So I'd done the funeral and, you know, I'd been to, picked up David's family who was staying at a hotel, picked them up and then we came over and we did the funeral and then we did it. By the time I got to the burial, I was absolutely bursting for a pee, <laughs> which did rather curtail the, the sort of solemnity of the occasion. Yeah, that's a good tip for people listening. Make sure you have a, a pee break between picking people up and, and before you head to the graveyard. Yeah. Never turned down an opportunity for a pee. Oh, number no, one. never. The other thing I learned, and it's so obvious, you know, I hadn't realised it before, is that you will be suffering from fatigue. Mm. So yeah. I was exhausted, absolutely yeah. exhausted. And the funeral itself was an ordeal. And I love a good funeral. Mm. I love doing them. But this was a, an ordeal. And I saw people there who I loved and wanted very much to be there. But it was just a day of management yeah yeah and uh, i just wanted it to be over and then lorna who's my closest friend she stayed with me and actually it was the sort of the first real breakdown i think i had was that night mm. after the funeral also we had five dogs and i had to rehome three of them because i couldn't oh. look after them so i did that on the day of the funeral because actually oh. everyone was sort of gathered so after the funeral people came and took three of the dogs away because i thought this is just going to be horrible mm. i'd rather do the horrible all in one day all i don't know if that day. was right but yeah. it was it was practical and that seemed like a good idea and while this was going on so we came back after the funeral i'd seen a hundred people and I had too many people to see in a way came back here and then people started arriving to take dogs and then the cops arrived because I'd received some hate mail and um, and they wanted to, there was a sort of stuff about that they needed to interview me about. So while this was all going on, I was going to talking to a police officer about um, evidence and about oh my stuff God. that people were in. Yeah, so it was just, the whole thing was weird. That's a lot to deal with on the day of the funeral. 
Yeah, it was. Yeah. Good takeaway, though. <laughs> <laughs> Good. David, David didn't like take, he, they, because he had a, a gut problem as one of his many problems, and so he couldn't fatty food or spicy food. He oh, couldn't bear. Yeah, yeah. So actually, one of the ways I kind of celebrated his death was by having a takeaway every evening. Hooray, <laughs> I could have a takeaway. And the other thing, anyone who's lived with someone with a chronic illness will know that it is really, really exhausting mm. and it grinds you down. And there is this kind of bonus when mm. they die yeah, because yeah. you don't have to do it anymore. Yeah. And it's a guilty bonus because you, yeah. you, know, you feel bad about it. But actually, it genuinely is this thing where I thought... Also, telly, right, I... David liked rom-coms, which I despise, and I like football, which he despised. So we used to have to do this deal that, in the end, it came out as he got two ugly Bettys or a legally blonde for a match of the day. And I could watch a match of the day and have a curry on my knee <laughs> without his disapproval kind yeah, of chorusing yeah, yeah. in my ear. Woo-hoo! Well, no wonder he's leaving you fag smoke if you're <laughs> pumping the house of curry, takeaway curry. He's probably, like, trying to balance it out. Yeah, I've had to knock that on the head, though, because another thing I've got is grief fat. Oh yeah, yeah. You I, well, I went the other way. I like lost way too much weight. You either do that or you get the grief fat. Yeah, I, I kind of did both. So I started getting grief fat, comfort eating, and yeah. then I thought, oh, going to get grip. So in first lockdown, I got really good actually, and I lost a chunk of weight. And then second lockdown came along, and again I thought, fuck it. <laughs> and I've just been eating like a pig, so I'm fat again. But now the weather's getting better. Maybe I'll lose a bit. Yeah, of I, I, I think the this, especially the last winter lockdown we've had, like. I became full bear. I was like, I'm hibernating, I'm eating my body. And, and when it's spring, I'll deal with it. But until yeah. then, yeah, I think um, the funeral, it's funny, isn't it? Because because you're, I, I'm, I've been to lots of funerals, <laughs> hence I do the show, but I'm not used to working at a funeral. And I wonder if that was also exhausting for you in another way, because it is also a place of your work and your bit, like you said, you know, so you can't, when I go into a church, it's very much like, oh, we're here for the thing. I'm yeah. doing the wedding, the funeral, the thing, and then I'm going to go. But yeah, it's, I wonder if it was also added well, to that level. There was a complication. So it was the tradition in my end of the church is that the, the body comes in the evening before. So David, oh. and that was actually good. So it was just me and his family to welcome <laughs> the coffin the evening before. And then we put a pall over it, a big cloth over it and a cross and we light some candles to say some prayers. And then David stayed overnight in church before his funeral. But we had another funeral before his funeral so it was all very lovely and in the at night after everyone had gone I went back to church on my own with the dog so we just sat there and kept vigil mm. uh, and I wanted to see if the dogs would do like Greyfriars Bobby and Daisy yeah, in yeah. particular was closest to him we kind of stare lovingly at his which she wasn't the least bit interested about <laughs> so that myth was exploded um, yeah but I, t- I sort of I sat there with him overnight. It was rather beautiful. Then I had to come back early in the morning and shunt him into a into a into a vestry so the oh, other no. coffin could come in, <laughs> and then shunt him back out again for the, the. The other thing with clergy is that we are very conscious of when we have other clergy in the audience. You must get as a comic if you've got oh, other yeah, yeah. in it's, the audience. Yeah, so doing a funeral with other clergy there, I felt particularly exposed. Although of course everyone's very generous, or they are. That's not in their minds. I don't know. Yeah, but. Uh, Another reason why I didn't want to do it because I didn't want to be, you know, feel I was being marked. Yeah, yeah. And no, a couple of things sort of went that. wrong, and like they always do. But it was, I planned the funeral quite carefully because mm. I like a funeral. Had you planned it with him? Had you talked about it with him at all? I knew one of the hymns he wanted, mm. but by the time he knew he was going to die, he wasn't lucid enough to. Mm. 
to make this a choice. But I knew what he would have wanted. I knew what mm. he wouldn't have wanted too, and he would have done it differently from me. And I respected that as far as I could. Mm. And then he's um. Here's a weird thing. David picked my outfits because I would dress like a student and live in squalor if it were up to me and so he would always kind of pick my outfits and after he died he had actually done outfits for me on a rack to because he would sort of say well you need to wear that with that so he had sort of I wonder if he intimating his own demise he'd sort of prepped a little bit but his last outfit I had to pick because uh, if you're a priest you get buried in vestments and so I had to pick his last outfit and I got to thing thinking oh my god he'd be so furious if I got this wrong and I knew I would get it wrong (laughs) and then there was this weird thing over so I wanted him to be buried in his ordination stole Mm. which I had given him but I couldn't find it and then I thought well I'll give him my ordination stole but I couldn't find that either and so in the end I found another stole and then after he was buried I found both of them and I thought I'll I don't suppose we can really dig him up and put another one on can we no but don't you think if you just said this is me being silly, but like you just said, I knew I'd get it wrong. I didn't know what to do. I couldn't find two stoles. To me, that sounds like David was like, not those ones. Exactly. And then he, and then he was like, done... this one. Yeah, no, I couldn't have done a worse job of it, actually. No, I feel like he, he, he didn't want those ones. He didn't let you find them. Well, actually, maybe that's right. I don't know. <laughs> I, know I, because... I just panicking. I know whatever I'm going to do, it's going to yeah. be wrong. So whatever. Well, that... I, to me, that there definitely sounds a little. I've had someone else say that that they couldn't. This pair of shoes that um, their father hated, and they just couldn't find them. They just couldn't find them for the after he died. And I was like, mm, sometimes See, the, the they move in mysterious ways. The characters that the tradition is that priests are buried in vestments and right, facing yeah, yeah. and the other way round from lay people because the idea is that at the general resurrection we rise out of our graves to greet the people. You see what oh, I mean? So I see. Wow. tradition. So. So that's how David's been. I'm going to be buried next to him. But when that happens, of course, we're both going to rise out of our grave. The first thing he's going to notice is that I got his his wrong. <laughs> so as the sort of mould falls off us and everything in some terrible kind of zombie argument, he's going to say, what the fuck did you put me in that stone for? I so left I it think, out. You knew where it was. Well, well, I'm going to be buried with his stoles as well so just when that ah, you can when the day over. happens that i will be able to say look it's all right here you go we can swap yeah. <laughs> um i just want you know talking about your faith how have you found has it been useful to have that faith or has it been difficult faith isn't useful okay <laughs> it's just a fact you yeah know? So yeah i um i faith is uh, is the kind of the whole landscape of my life I knew, um, you know, and if you're a Christian, of course, Good Friday is at the centre of that. So mm. I knew, and I've been there before, that life could be bleak and hard and cold and fierce and any sense you might have of God loving you and sustaining you would go. And I knew that, and that did happen. Mm. And um, and I went the first night, and also I went to the hospital chapel, and I, I did not pray, but I, and I didn't say, but my intention was right you know i'm not going to be good for much for a while Mm. so over to you um and none of that's rocked or changed at all and i found i've been it hasn't affected my ability to do the things i need to do for the people i'm responsible for Mm. so pastorally i don't think i've been underpowered as a result the toughest thing for me has been not anything like that it's not shaken my world to the extent that i felt my faith 
faltered or failed, the toughest thing for me has been losing the future. Mm. And I didn't see that coming, daft. But when David died, he took with him our future. And mm. that was lovely. And I really was looking forward to it. And it mm. was quite detailed. We actually found a place where we were going to go live. And he was younger than me. So I, I was going to step down and he was. this was going to happen, you know, in just a couple of years. So I was going to step down and then he would step up and do his thing. And we found a place that we would let that happen in and that, and that we loved. And then nothing. And I found just waking up in the morning and thinking, I've got nothing to look forward to, mm. was so was so weird. And one of the things I've done in the past year and a bit is begin to put up a framework for a future, and and that's that's happening. But I would, I just there's a place we we go is very special to us in Scotland, and that's where we were found this house that we hoped we were going to get. And uh, I was due to go up last year and couldn't because of lockdown. I was due to go up this year. We would go early in May and can't because of lockdown. So I booked to go in next year, but it'll be without him. And some friends of mine have very kindly volunteered. They've rented the next house along. It's on a private estate. It's very remote. So they're there, but I don't know if I want to go now Mm. because I don't know. I just, maybe that, maybe I should, close that chapter I don't know Mm. yeah it's hard isn't it because that yeah that chapter ended with both of you going and so of course you can go by yourself but yeah it's like is is that when you're forging your new path that you have to forge is that the right place to go or should they go you know I think you you just have to wait and see till you get nearer the time I think because well I think I've found a way forward that's not that yeah so I'm going to. I mean, the one, you know, there's a tough question, isn't there? If this is if your spouse dies, is there life after? Mm. And the answer is yes, there is. And what do I want that life to be? I've no idea. Could I imagine another person in my life? No, I couldn't. Mm. But you know, but I think I need to live a new life, and I need to go somewhere else to start living it. That's what I think. And that's beginning to sort of take shape now. I think that's a really nice. Not nice is not the right word, but a really heartening sentiment for people who have lost a spouse. Because you know, I watched my mum go through the same thing, and it's it's not easy when you've yeah been working towards the same endpoint for so long. Um, yeah. So thank you so much for talking to me. Lovely to talk to you. It's nice to talk to someone who gets it. You can follow Richard on Twitter at Rev Richard Coles, that's R-E-V Richard C-O-L-E-S, and his book The Madness of Grief is out now. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at The Griefcast. The show was edited by Kate Holland. The music was provided by the Glue Ensemble. It was recorded, I think still in lockdown, from both mine and Richard's living rooms. And remember, you are not alone. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer let's wake up those taste buds with hot juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi Mm. hello fresh 
Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.